and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, saying, Come and see. Thunder Radio with Christian J. Pento. Okay, praise the Lord, you guys, and welcome. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today on the show, we are going to talk about the advance of Islamic Sharia in the United States. And the story is based on a new development in the city of Hamtramck in Michigan, where they now have, it, it's considered the, the city with the first Muslim majority population there, where they've now taken control of the city council and they've passed an ordinance that says Muslims can conduct animal sacrifice rituals in their backyard, in their neighborhood. I mean, it it's... It sounds absolutely grisly, and we're going to listen to audio from this city council meeting and, and the objections that were raised, and it's it's just unbelievable that this discussion is even happening. But uh, before we get to that, we're going to talk about some other things. I did want to mention, uh, yesterday was Martin Luther King's birthday, celebration of MLK. Uh, and uh, for that, I thought about doing a whole show on it, but... I wasn't sure about it. I was doing some research, however, into Martin Luther King. And what do you know? Martin Luther King received an honorary doctorate from the Jesuit order. In fact, if you type in Martin Luther King Jr. and the Jesuits, you'll find uh, on JesuitsEast.org their article on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at St. Peter's College. St. Peter's College is a Jesuit college. And uh, they say uh, in 1965, a gathering of, of over 500 students, faculty members, administrators, and members of the press assembled in Dineen Auditorium in St. Peter's College, now University, in Jersey City to hear a Baptist minister from Georgia talk about his vision for America's future. He was working toward dismantling legislation and an ideology he viewed as evil, one which prevented black Americans from being equal to their white brothers and sisters. His Christian faith was the impetus for his nonviolent fight for social justice through civil disobedience. This man was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, of course, he was, he was uh, given an honorary doctorate there from St. Peter's College, and you can see a black and white photograph of uh, Martin Luther King next to Father Victor Yanatelli S.J., stands for Society of Jesus, uh, and Father Thomas Wassimer S.J., okay, two Jesuits on either side of MLK. Now, Anybody who studies Martin Luther King Jr. can figure out very quickly he was not a Christian man. He did not believe the gospel, did not believe the Bible was the inspired word of God. And he was a very immoral man and had a, really led a secret double life. 
And this was admitted by the people who were closest to him. That's that's the thing. Uh, People try to blame the FBI under Hoover because they recorded all kinds of information on King. But it wasn't just him. It was people who knew Martin Luther King personally. But that is not the subject of our show. It's not the topic of our program today. So we're going to we're going to try and stay on topic talking about the issue of the advance of Islam. But isn't it interesting that wherever you find the social justice Marxist oriented movements and yes, Martin Luther King Jr. was a Marxist uh, and he was really promoting a Marxist form of government. And we're seeing that more and more as this whole issue of racial agitation advances, where they're ultimately headed with it. You see, if they would just stop with the idea of desegregation and granting equality to all citizens, that would be one thing. But that's not the ultimate ambition. The ultimate ambition is to use the communist forced integration methods where they forcibly integrate foreign populations into a country and have them systematically take over the system and use accusations of racism and bigotry and everything else as the excuse for doing it. Uh, That began with people like Martin Luther King Jr. That's that's where it began. But it it begins in in a way that seems reasonable to people so that they will accept it. Then once it's accepted, then they move it to the next level. And that's where the the, uh, affirmative action type stuff comes in, forced integration. Well, these methods that are very, very deliberate are the reason why we have so many Muslims being brought into our country and why they have been systematically integrated now into our political system as well. It's why Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have been in our Congress. And it's why the city of Hamtramck has been systematically taken over by Islamic immigrants. Hamtramck, Michigan. Now, Hamtramck is also, I mean, obviously, Michigan is also home to Dearborn, Michigan. And most people are well aware that in Dearborn, Michigan, you have a very large Islamic population there. There's lots and lots of Muslims, and they're pretty much taking over that city. Uh, Well, Hamtramck in Michigan, has been almost entirely taken over now by Islam. And the reason why this is, uh, the reason why I'm calling this the advance of Sharia, Islamic Sharia in our country, is because now that the Muslims control the local government there in Hamtramck, Michigan, the Hamtramck City Council has now declared that they can no longer have a ban on ritual animal sacrifice. Ritual animal sacrifice. In other words, Muslims ritually sacrificing animals to their moon god, Allah. Okay? And a lot of people don't understand, and I've talked about this several times on our program, because I think it's very, very important. Sometimes people think when they hear about Islam and they hear about halal food, food that is halal, they think that it's just like with Jewish preparation of food, kosher. Okay, we like kosher food. 
I, I love kosher salt. I use uh, kosher salt for cooking all the time. I think it's great. The big, large grain, you know, raw kosher salt. I love that. We like uh, kosher meat and so on. Be- why? Because it's been prepared according to, or at least presumably my understanding is, it's prepared according to biblical standards for how meat is to be prepared, where an animal is not to suffer pain before it is killed. Animals are to be treated in a very humane manner. That is something that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the righteous man cares for the life of an animal, but the wicked don't. The wicked treat animals in a despicable manner. That's a biblical standard. That's Proverbs 12 and verse 10. Proverbs 12, 10. In fact, let me get the exact scripture here. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So this is why in our country, which, yes, the standards we have in America are based on the Bible from the beginning. They've been handed down for hundreds of years. A lot of people are not aware of that. A lot of, a lot of agnostics and pagans and so on who are into animal rights activism and so on, they don't know where the whole concept of animal rights came from. Yes, it began with biblical teaching. But now in Islam, it, it, the Muslims have a very, very different history and how they deal with animals. Over in, in Europe, in Western Europe, it has been exposed a number of times that where you have Islamic slaughterhouses and so on, they treat the animals in a horrible manner. They, they, they kick them, they beat them, they punch them. They do all sorts of uh, abusive things to animals. Very, very violent. It's, uh, it's not, not a good situation at all. It's a completely different culture. And when you talk about halal food, halal food from a Muslim is not the same as kosher f- food from the Jewish community. Not at all. Halal food is specifically meat sacrificed to an idol. It is exactly what we are being warned about throughout the New Testament. In fact, this is what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, when Jesus is uh, confronting, reproving the church in Thyatira, where he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. To eat things sacrificed unto idols. No, in general, it is not a good idea to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, Paul says in his letter that if Christians, if, if you go to someplace, you know, if you're, if you're invited to go to some gathering, Paul says, and you're pleased to go, and then somebody offers you something to eat, Paul says, well, you can accept it without necessarily asking anything. He says, but if they tell you specifically, if they offer you a plate of meat that was sacrificed to an idol, then you should refuse it. Then you should say, no, you don't want to, you don't want to eat that. Why? Because you're not going to engage in idolatry and you, you don't want to give any credibility to the practices of idolatry. So that is why you don't eat meat 
sacrificed to an idol. Now, this is not like you have some people who try to relate things like we just went through this over the uh, the Christmas show that we had where people keep trying to associate the Christmas holiday with paganism and this kind of thing where, no, the Christmas holiday was not established to celebrate paganism. You have two arguments about Christmas. One, that Christmas was established to get away from paganism, right? And so they adopted December 25th, it is said, uh, as to celebrate the birth of Christ so that they would not be engaging in a pagan festival. That's one argument. In fact, I recently uncovered a quote from the late great R.C. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, apparently. I was having a discussion with one of our listeners uh, via email, and we were going back and forth and sharing some different quotes because every year the whole Christmas controversy continues. And uh, but, but this was actually a very healthy discussion. And I think we should have healthy, useful, informative discussions and debates about these things and not try to attack each other. But anyway, Dr. Sproul believed that the Christmas celebration every year was a good thing because, as he pointed out, throughout the Old Testament, God encouraged and commanded at points ancient Israel to have their feast days and holy days and so on were often to be had in remembrance of the great things that God had done for them. And so that is the purpose of having a holy day to remember God's goodness, to remember what the Lord has done. As Samuel said to the children of Israel, consider how great things God has done for you. And so that's the real purpose of the Christmas celebration, to remember uh, the great thing that the Lord has done, sending his only begotten son into the world to die for our sins, so that by faith in him we receive the forgiveness of sins, and have eternal life. Praise the Lord. Now, I was planning in the, in the second part of the show to take a few minutes and talk about more of the Christmas dialogue. I've, I've inserted a bit of it in here while we're talking about the advance of Sharia, but to show you the difference. It's one thing for somebody to say, well, I think there are elements of the old pagan world in this and that and the other. That's one thing. It's something else to literally have a pagan god like Allah, the moon god of Islam. And yes, Allah is the moon god of Islam. You have people who try to deny that. What is the symbol of Islam? What is their cent central symbol? The crescent moon. They will tell you that. You can go look at Islamic symbols. Look at their flags. Look at the, uh, the icon above their mosques. What is it? It's a crescent moon. Why? Because there's no association with the moon god? Of course not. It, it is the moon god of the ancient world. That is what Allah is. Of course, we believe Allah is really Satan masquerading himself as the moon god. But nevertheless, uh, it is very clearly a pagan god. God, a heathen deity. 
Allah is not equal to the God of the Bible. It's not the same as the God of the Bible. Now, you have these ecumenists who are trying to push this narrative, trying to say, oh, yes, they are the one and the same thing, this kind of thing. Even the Islamic scholars several years ago came out, a whole collection of leading Islamic imams and academics published an official statement refuting the idea that their Allah was somehow or other the same as the God of the Bible. They reject that entirely. You've got a small collection of globalists, Jesuits, and some, there, yes, there are some ecumenical Muslims. I've encountered them in the past, but they're a minority who are pushing this narrative. Now, the reason they're pushing the narrative in the West, because they most certainly don't receive it in Saudi Arabia and these other Islamic countries, but they're pushing it in the Western world to advance Islam in America, in England, and in all the historically Christian countries of Western civilization. And if you want to see the fruit of this ecumenical deception and politically, the political fruit of it is what's happening right now in the city of Hamtramck, Michigan. There you now have a city taken over by Muslims that have been systematically imported into our country and they are beginning to advance the principles of Sharia law. That's what's happening. Now, we've already seen this, seen the effect of it with the manipulation of our Constitution after World War II. Once they struck down the original meaning of Article 6, that no religious test would be required to hold a government office, the original meaning of that was that you could not require someone to swear an oath about their religion. That's what they were looking to get away from. Well, they reinterpreted that because prior, you could have a religious requirement. You could require that people be Christians and that they believe the Bible. You couldn't have them swear an oath about it, but you could have it as a prerequisite. And that's what most all the states in our country had for from the beginning, from all the way back in the colonies, through the revolution, all the way through the 19th century, all the way into the 20th century. Uh, they overturned it. The Supreme Court overturned it in 1961 with the case, the, the equivalent of Roe v. Wade in the same way that Roe v. Wade legalized abortion, Torquezo Torquezo versus Watkins, 1961, basically legalized paganism in the government of the United States, empowered pagans to now hold government offices in the United States. That is the, the equivalent, Torquezo versus Watkins. Every Christian should be aware of this. And they should go and study the laws of our country prior. Remember, an atheist back in the 19th century, an atheist was not even permitted to testify as an, a witness in a court of law in our country. Wasn't allowed because they didn't believe in God. And our whole system is based on the authority of God. All men are created and endowed by their creator, who is God. How are you going to have God-given rights without God? Well, you're not, obviously, and that's the whole point. That's what the communists want. They want our country to be handed over to 
uh, really a form of militant atheism that then opens the door to these predatory groups to come in and be used as weapons to undermine our historically Christian constitution. Because, yes, the constitution was considered primarily by, by the great majority. Sure, you had dissenters here and there. Uh, but the majority of people understood our constitution was a Christian document that was based on Christian principles. And we explain this in great detail in our film, The True Christian History of America. Anyway, all right, so the, the all-Muslim Hamtramck City Council has now allowed animal sacrifice, which is where they sacrifice these animals. This is part of halal. They dedicate them to Allah, the moon god, and then that's what halal food is. It's dedicated to the pagan god of Islam. So bear that in mind. It is meat sacrificed to an idol. Now, the reason that's important is you, you've seen people like uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. They, they came out with, at one point, a halal version of their ice cream. I tell my, uh, my, my family, my wife and my daughters, when they go to the grocery store, you pick up an ice cream, you flip it on the back. If it says halal on there, the answer is no, you don't bring it into our house. We're not going to have anything that has been dedicated to a pagan god. Absolutely not. Not if we can avoid it. Now, they're doing all kinds of tricky stuff out there and trying to deceive the Christians in our country that's something that, that's ongoing. But if we know about it, I believe we have a duty to avoid it as much as we can. But this is part of what Islam does to systematically infiltrate a system. And this is really just the beginning. Now, I'm going to share one more thing before we go to the commercial break. Why this is important. And how they're going to continue to advance the principles of Sharia through the courts. Uh, the New York Times reported back in November of 2018 the direction that the courts will take this whole thing. Uh, here's a headline. It says federal ban on female genital mutilation ruled unconstitutional by judge. FMG, female genital mutilation, which is a practice of Islam where underage girls, young underage girls are castrated. It is considered by many to be a barbaric practice. But it is part of the traditions of Islam to castrate young girls. Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. But nevertheless, the ban on this has been struck down and declared unconstitutional. Why? Because it's supposedly a violation of freedom of religion. But the boundaries of morality in our country prior to 1961, were always determined by Christianity. Sure, people could have the freedom to believe whatever they want in your own conscience, your own heart. But whatever actions you take in our country are governed by the moral boundaries of the Christian religion. That has always been true here. And of course, we're watching it change one step at a time. All right, let's go to our commercial break. We're going to come back. We'll talk more. Uh, with some of this uh, Christmas holiday stuff. And I'm going to play some audio from this Islamic city council meeting that they had in Hamtramck, Michigan, when we come back right after this. 
Adullam Films presents a stunning new documentary, The True Christian History of America, exploring the Bible-based Christian origins of the early American view of freedom, tracing the principles of liberty back to England and the Great Reformation. For many years, our schools have taught that the founding of our Republic was from the Deists or the Enlightenment in France. But is that truly the case? Did the Enlightenment first declare no taxation without representation or trial by jury? Were they the champions of freedom of speech or of the press or the right to bear arms? And why did Samuel Adams declare that the reign of political Protestantism would commence just before signing the Declaration of Independence? Filmed on location in both the United States and Europe, The True Christian History of America is now available at adullamfilms.com. That's adullamfilms.com. Now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Adullam Films presents an exciting new documentary, Bridge to Babylon, part three in an award-winning series on the untold history of the Bible. Dr. Jack Moorman calls it a masterful presentation of what is the single most important issue facing Christians today, the defense of the Bible as the Word of God. Why was the Bible changed in 1881? Why have so many churches abandoned biblical inerrancy? And what direction are scholars taking the scriptures today? Learn the truth in Bridge to Babylon, the sequel to A Lamp in the Dark and Tares Among the Wheat. Bridge to Babylon is now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Noise of Thunder Radio. Okay, we are back. Praise the Lord, you guys. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Thanks for staying with the show today. Today, we're talking about the situation in Hamtramck, Michigan. Now, the reason this drew my attention was because I remember several years ago, there was a story that came out and they were talking about diversity in Hamtramck, Michigan. At last, they have diversity. Why? Because they had an all-Muslim city council that was voted into power. And they were saying, oh, Hamtramck celebrates its diversity. And of course, critics pointed out, well, why is it diverse? How is it diverse to have an all Muslim city council? How is that diverse? There's no diversity there. The Muslims just took over the city council. And then you had this one Muslim who uh, who got up and he said, no, we will show the Americans and da, da, da. And somebody, some, another Muslim stepped in and quieted him down and said, shh, 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 shh. And, and said, you know, no, 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 don't get carried away. But you could just tell that it's like this Muslim population. There's no question, you guys. We, we've talked about this before. We played the audio of the Muslim woman talking about making all America Muslim. This is their plan. There's no question about this. This now is like a beachhead for them. Hamtramck, Michigan is like a beachhead for them to advance their political agenda in the United States. There's no question. But I'm going to play some audio here. This is from a story uh, just not that long ago, back in 2016. Uh, it's listed on the YouTube channel CGTN. 
and it's from a CCTV news story. Okay. Uh, and they, the headline was inside Hamtramck, America's only Muslim majority city. I'm going to play the audio and then we'll talk about it. Listen. The population of this Detroit suburb, known as Little Warsaw, was 90% ethnically Polish. Now it's just over 10%. Some moved out, but more so others moved in, specifically Muslim immigrants. Over the last few decades, new arrivals from Yemen, Bangladesh, Iraq, and other countries. Hamtramck is now said to be the U.S.'s first Muslim-majority city, and following a win in a recent election for Yemen-born Saad al-Masmari, Hamtramck now has the first Muslim-majority city council. This is the real uh, uh, land of opportunity. I came in 2009, here I am, uh, a city council in one of the cities, so uh, this is the real, uh, the real opportunity that I have. Uh, I respect America, I love America, America is my home. Wow, did you hear that? So he came here in 2009, 2009, and here it is 2016, just seven years later, and he's allowed to become a city councilman in the government? Really? That quickly? He was able to achieve U.S. citizenship. It's, it's almost like they brought him here and then very quickly got him involved in politics somehow. Uh, and, and notice now the Polish population that used to be 90% in that community is now just around 10%. I think they said maybe a little bit more. So the, the rest of the community is mainly Muslim. Why? Because they've been piling Muslim immigrants into that city. This has been going on since before the Bush administration. Remember that folks, if you watch the uh, the documentary Jihad in America by Steve Emerson. He warned about this even before the attack on 9-11. He warned about all the Muslims that were being brought in from the Middle East and being put into these small cities in the heartland of America. All right, let's listen to more of this audio. Here it is. Hamtramck's perhaps a microcosm of what's happening in the U.S., Currently, Muslims make up 1% of the national population, but their share is expected to double by the middle of the century. And the percentage of Muslims being granted permanent residency in the U.S. has also doubled in the last decade. A handful of mosques now serves Hamtramck's growing Muslim population. Imam Fakrul Islam says the recent election was good for everyone. They are uh, representative of the whole city, not only, only one religion. Some fear the new immigrants may forever change the face of this city. Others say there's a way to preserve the past while being open to the future. Karen Majewski owns this vintage store in the center of town. She is Polish-American and also Hamtramck's mayor. It's not a Disneyland. It's not a, um, it's not a fantasy land. This is real life and, and real Americans, you know, working out their differences and, and adjusting you know, for the immigrant on the immigrants' part, adjusting to a new world, and um, for the uh, you know Americans who have been here for generations, adjusting to uh, to changes in the American fabric. All right. Now, the 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 first problem with the the profile or or, or the presentation of this story, the way the story is being presented, is that they're doing this contrast between the Polish immigrants that first 
came into Hamtramck, Michigan, versus the Muslim immigrants that are now arriving in Hamtramck, Michigan. And what's happening is very, very different. The Polish immigrants, Poland is a historically Catholic country. And in fact, it's kind of ironic. The One of the great battles of history is the Battle of Vienna. And it, it was the great Polish king, John Sobieski, who rode in with his winged warriors and defeated the Turks, the Muslim army that tried to take over Vienna and then from there was going to invade all of Europe. It was actually the Poles, the, 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 the king of Poland and his army that put a stop to it, that beat back the Islamic invaders and prevented them from invading the rest of Europe. In fact, if you eat a croissant today, remember the croissant, which means crescent, a reference to the Islamic crescent moon of, of uh, Islam, that, that croissant, that breakfast uh, pastry was literally created as a result of the defeat of the Muslims by the Polish king John Sobieski. And the uh, French bakers apparently created it as a symbol of victory over the enemies of Christianity. Okay? And they, they said the Polish king has had the Turks for breakfast, they said. And so that was a symbol of victory over Islam. If you see, in fact, I, I discovered this some time ago, uh, my family crest, the Pinto family crest on my father's side of the family, I grew up seeing it hanging on the wall there. My dad ordered it from one of those family crest companies, you know, that'll send you a plaque and has your coat of arms and the shield and the symbols and so on. Well, among the symbol symbols for the Pinto family crest are these um, upside down moons, moons that are kind of where the, the, uh, the, the, the tips of the crescent are pointed upwards and the half circle is on the bottom. Um, and I remember seeing that and wondering about it. Gee, what, what does that symbolize? Well, apparently the crescent moons on the shield of um, families from that era, from the Middle Ages, signified that they fought in the Crusades. So it would appear that I have ancestors on my dad's side, uh, which was the Catholic side of my family, uh, that fought in the Crusades at some point uh, based upon that coat of arms. But whenever you see that, it's, uh, it's a reference to the Crusaders fighting against Islam. Uh, and the croissant, if you have a croissant for breakfast, that's why it's in the shape of a crescent, uh, because it symbolizes the victory of the great Polish king over, and, and really I think all the defenders there at the Battle of Vienna collectively, but King Sobieski got kind of the lion's share of credit for that because he rode in at the last moment and, and saved the day, as it were. A very, very uh, uh, spectacular moment in history. But so now it's ironic that centuries later, it's the Polish immigrants that for some reason are I don't know if they've retreated from this area or did they move out because there were too many of these immigrants coming in? I honestly don't know. We'd have to do more investigation into it. But somehow or other, the Islamic 
presence in Hamtramck is now roughly, I'm guessing, about 90%, you know, probably 80 to 90%, something like that. But they dominate the politics of Hamtramck. You also heard in this interview, the mayor was Polish, a woman uh, who probably would have been Catholic or Christian in some way or another, people who are going to be much more compatible with our historically Christian country. But Islam is a completely different culture. They have a completely different set of laws, and we are now beginning to see that that is the case. Why? Because the Muslims want to do animal sacrifices in their backyards in Hamtramck, Michigan. Now, I want you to listen to this audio where this guy who appears to be a Muslim from the community is talking about how if they allow this, it's going to cause property values to tank, that that people are not going to want to buy any of the houses near people who are conducting animal sacrifices in their backyard, if you can believe this. All right, let's listen to this. Here it is. This is a very, very, really health issue, guys, because when you kill the animal, there's a blood, there's a lot of contribution, there's a skin, and mostly a lot of the garbage companies that don't take it, there's have to be a special way to dispose of. From my experience, I worked with the USDA since 2012, and this is a really ridiculous, catastrophic uh, resolution, bring it. Because of, we have a kids, we have a lot of artistic kids. I don't want them to see the animal slaughtering. They will get traumatized. They try to kill themselves when they see animals killing. The most important thing is we are, what we are doing is we are saying, hey, USDA government, you guys stay behind me and we make the rules right here. I'm not against the religion. I'm not against anybody. I respect all the religion. But look at that way. From 52 states, all the people are going to come here to slaughter their animals. Everybody related to everybody. I build the houses. I'm a, I'm a developer. City manager knows uh, how many houses I already built, brand new houses. Now I stop buying the lots because I don't know the crazy resolution in the parcel no. Because people not going to come buy they're not going to buy the houses for $350,000 because they're, they're next door. They have to see animal killing. And after that, they all the residents have to bury the blood and everything in their backyard, just like a graveyard. Why we have a graveyard for? This is safety. They're going to put stuff in the backyard. The whole city is going to be smelled. We cannot go outside the city because everybody's going to think, oh, this guy's a killer. Don't go to Hamtramck. I made the houses for more than $300,000. I did it myself. I built so many houses here. Only here in Hamtramck. We had resolution. It's not for yourself. Do something good for the city, guys. I'm really honoring you. Please talk about how you can build the city, how you can make the towers, how you can clean the things. Not going 100 years back. This is 100 years back. Even in our country, we have the area to take them. Be honest with you, this is whoever started, this is one of the worst since I'm living here since 96. Okay, so there you just heard. Uh, I let that play out there for a little bit uh, so you could really get the sense of what's going on and, and what, I mean, things you, 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 you didn't even think about. And here a guy, 
very obviously one of the more sane people in the community. The guy who's the home builder, he's thinking about the value of the real estate in that part of the country and what's going to happen to the value of of Hamtramck real estate if you've got people in their backyard slaughtering cows and this kind of thing uh, right there in front of everybody. I mean, I was thinking about this as I was pondering the story. We've got people who do deer hunting and that kind of thing, and they skin deer when they hunt them and so on, but they typically do that out in the country. They do that in a separated area. We don't have people in our neighborhoods hanging up deer in the backyard and skinning them and then hanging the meat out there and and this kind of thing, which, of course, he's talking about what kind of a smell you're going to have in the neighborhood. He's talking about what are you going to do with the waste? The garbage companies are not going to pick it up. Uh, this, This is going to create sanitation issues and so on, especially if you've got all these different Muslim households doing the same thing. So it wouldn't just be that one guy down on the corner. No, it would be everybody because this is part of their religion. But you can just imagine the horror of living in a community where this kind of thing was going on uh, and who would go live there. I think the guy's completely right. Probably you wouldn't have any of the right sort of people would want to go live there. Not at all. Even conservative Muslims would probably stay out of there because they would recognize that you buy a house in that part of the world, the value of it is going to, you know, it's going to go down immediately because nobody's going to want to move there. It's going to be hard to conduct businesses there. You'll have people as a matter of conscience that will say, no, they don't want to go there where they're, they're slaughtering animals like this. You know, people will begin to shun the community, which is all what happens in a free society. So, but this is the, the fact that they've even mentioned this, the fact that they've even proposed the idea is itself an indication of the direction that Islam is going to take in our country. And I don't know where the, how this is going to end up. It should be very interesting to see what happens. But with Islam advancing politically in our nation, this kind of thing, just like female genital mutilation, and ultimately this is going to come around, I'm telling you, I'm warning people right now, it's not going to happen in six months or a year, I don't think, but it is on the horizon. Why? because I don't believe it is in vain that the Jesuits have been allowing a Muslim professor to teach that slavery is perfectly acceptable at Georgetown University for no reason. I don't believe that is in vain. That is part of what I believe is a long-range program that the Jesuits have for our country and the direction that they want to take the United States of America back in the direction of the open and legal practicing of slavery. That's where I think they're headed. That is my prediction. But it may take another 10 years before they start having those serious discussions. But the fact that they've got a guy at Georgetown University and they haven't fired him, even though he was exposed a number of years ago, Professor Jonathan Brown, Because you see, eventually the argument could be 
if you have Muslims here who are keeping people as their slaves, because there have already been cases of, of Muslims who have come into the country and they brought slaves with them from other countries who were brought in as a housemaid. And then they found out later that she was a slave. She wasn't just a housemaid. She was a slave. And all of this came to light in the community and the husband ended up being arrested. This was a story that happened here in the U.S. a number of years ago. And he was complaining that his rights as a Muslim, you know, his religious freedom was not being respected. That whole argument, I believe, is going to advance in the future. And so what they're doing now with things like female genital mutilation, this uh, animal killing in their backyards, which is part of their halal ceremonies, etc. All of this is moving in, I think, I believe, a very deliberate direction. This is not accidental. They are deliberately trying to advance and agitate with these elements of traditional Islam uh, to push back against the traditional Christian value system of our Constitution which they want to undermine and overthrow. It's why they're promoting transgenderism. It's why they're going into the schools and and conditioning the children the way that they are. They want to completely destabilize our republic. And it's what they're doing. And this, I think, is this. This isn't the biggest thing that's happening right now. It's one of many areas of agitation that the globalists are affecting in our country. So we've got to be that much more committed, I think, to recovering our history, our heritage, to dig into our Bibles, to consider what happened with ancient Israel. That's why I think studying what happened to Israel, how did they fall into the worship of Baal and the worship of Molech? And how is it that they were able to normalize the worship of the golden calves in the days of Jeroboam up in the northern kingdom in Samaria. How did that happen? It could not have happened overnight. It had to happen because the people were systematically conditioned to receive these ideas. And I believe that's the greater danger of what we're seeing happen in our country. Because we need to understand that things that they're promoting, whether it's homosexuality, transgenderism, all of these different things, these things were practiced by the pagans in the ancient world. Now they're going to do uh, sacrificing animals unto an idol. Okay, meat sacrificed unto idols. This is moving our country in a retrograde manner. That's why I thought that quote from that guy, even though he didn't necessarily see it from a biblical perspective, he said, this is moving us backward, guys moving us in a backward direction. Really what he means is in a retrograde manner, moving backward away from civilization and back toward the savagery and barbarism of the old pagan world. And uh, what we have to realize is that it is Christianity with the Bible, with the word of God that has disentangled mankind from the dark age and from the, the savagery of paganism and the ignorance and su- of superstition and so on of the old pagan world 
and provided the light of God's word to give men a, a, a path, a direction, light by which to see. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Man has no way to remove himself from error and corruption unless God, our creator, provides us that light. We, we grope around like in a darkened room where there is no light. You ever walk in, into a room where it's just pitch black, you can't even see your hand in front of your face? That's a picture of our condition spiritually and the condition of all mankind, just groping around in darkness. And so we have the scripture that says, they that sat in darkness have seen a great light. That was the light of the gospel given unto the Gentiles. And we can't let go of that light because the reality is the reason America became the greatest country in the world is with God's blessing, the blessing of almighty God, our creator. We should never lose sight of that. All of our ancestors said the same thing. The people who founded and built this country and saw uh, this the, the colonies be developed and turned into very productive environments and towns and cities and schools and universities and hospitals and everything, the way they saw it rise up very, very quickly. Everyone acknowledged that it was God's blessing and, and his guidance and his help along the way. Even with, even with all the imperfections of those who came before us. Why? Because they were sinners the same as we are. So yeah, of course they made mistakes, but they also did many great things. And the blessings uh, that God gave to them have been handed down to us. And so we've got to recognize how those blessings happened, why it is that God blessed his people in this country. And it wasn't because they went around saying that all religions are one and the same, not at all. There was an understanding from the majority population here that Christianity is the only true religion. And that is a standard that we need to restore in our country, and we need to restore it politically because our Constitution is written from that perspective. Remember something, folks. We abolished slavery in America and the Western world based upon that principle, based on the idea of Christian supremacy, not Christian equality with paganism. We never would have abolished slavery that way, ever. Why would we? Why would anybody? All the pagan religions accepted slavery. No, the reason we abolished slavery is because we believed in the supremacy of God's law in the Bible and the teachings of Christ, especially in the New Testament, that Christ came to set the captives free. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But that's not an ecumenical message. That's a message that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by him. Praise the Lord. Okay, so now we're going to shift at this point, and I wanted to take a few minutes here in the last part of the program to do follow-up on the discussions that we've had, and those of you who have been part of our Facebook feed and, and the comments section there, you know that the comments went back and forth over the whole Christmas uh, celebration controversy, which happens every year. 
and I think it's even uh, discussed and debated throughout the year. Uh, I mentioned earlier that R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, uh, actually supported the celebration of Christmas. Uh, however, we could go back to the 19th century, as a friend of mine pointed out, he sent me an email, uh, pointing out that Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, did not support the celebration of Christmas. It was something that he believed was not appropriate. Now, he took the view, and many people do, that unless God has specifically ordained a feast day or a holy day or something, that it's not something that Christians should observe. Uh, in other words, observe to honor God. That's the view. And there are many people who have that view. The, the counter argument to that, which is a very biblical argument, is that you have at least two Jewish feast days, holy days, that are not specifically ordained by God in the Bible. And one of them is the Purim celebration that uh, goes back to the book of Esther. It was not something that God specifically commanded. It was when the Jewish people were delivered. Of course, we all believe that it was God who delivered them uh, from the plot by Haman to carry out a Holocaust against them. And Queen Esther was the instrument who stepped forward with her uncle Mordecai, and they ultimately by the grace of God, were able to overturn this plot to kill the Jews. And so as a result, Mordecai ordains a, uh, a time of remembrance, the Purim celebration, which they have every year. And they still have to this day among the Jewish people, they have the Purim celebration every year. But it was not specifically ordained by God's commandment. It's a man-made celebration, remembering what God has done, remembering God's deliverance during the time of Esther, because as the scripture says, consider how great things God has done for you. So you have the example of the Purim celebration uh, that is mentioned in John chapter 5 and verse 1. That's what is generally thought to be the case. There are some people who disagree about what holiday is being mentioned there. But the next one is more definite. And this, of course, is a Jewish holiday that I think most Americans are aware of, and that is Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which is remembered every year by the Jewish people to this very day, known as the Feast of Dedication that you find in John chapter 10, verse 22. Hanukkah was declared to be a holiday in the apocryphal book of Maccabees, set forth by Judas Maccabeus in celebration of the Jewish military victory over Antiochus IV of Syria, after which they rededicated the temple in Jerusalem. So that is clearly a man-made festival, Hanukkah, that again, the Jewish people continue to celebrate every year. And it was being observed during the time of our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles 2,000 years ago. And there's not a word in the scripture that it was somehow or other inappropriate to acknowledge this feast of dedication. Not at all. So that argument, I believe, is refuted or at least called into question by the New Testament examples that we have. The idea that you, you can't have a feast day or a holy day unless it was specifically ordained 
by God's commandment. Now, the next thing is the idea that birthdays are a a Gentile pagan practice, a Gentile pagan celebration. Well, think about what happens at the birth of Christ when the Magi appear from the East. The Magi who probably, I believe, I agree with the argument that says that they were uh, not that they were really astrologers who were studying the stars so much as they would have been studying the prophecies of the writings of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who was called chief of the Magi in ancient Babylon during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. They would have remembered his writings. They would have studied them because Daniel lays out the timeline with the 70 weeks of Daniel, the timeline for when the Messiah would appear. And when they arrive, what do they do? They bring gifts. Why? Because this was a Gentile practice to bring someone gifts as a birthday gift. That's what they would do. Well, we don't find any uh, rebuke from Joseph and Mary and so on. They don't say, well, we're Jewish. We, we don't uh, celebrate birthdays the way that you Gentiles do. So we can't accept these gifts or something. They don't do that. And, and there's no negative, uh, no rebuke given toward the Magi. They came to honor the Messiah, the birth of the King of the Jews. And of course, they're remembered for the last 2,000 years because of their faith, because that's what they had. They had faith. I believe they had faith in the word of God, faith in the prophecies that God had given through Daniel. And that's what they were ultimately following and were guided by. So just because it was, you know, the celebration of a birthday and bringing gifts and that kind of thing was a Gentile practice and tradition, that does, it's nowhere specifically condemned by God. Now, there are things that are specifically condemned and whatever they are, well, then you avoid them. But we have to be discerning. We have to be not unwise but understanding what the will of the Lord is. What is it that God is really trying to communicate? Uh, like with, you know, when Paul makes reference to the oxen treading out the grain or the corn, uh, Paul says, does God care for oxen? Or did he not say this altogether for our sakes? So Paul sees an inner meaning to some of these commands and so on. And, and what is God really communicating? That's what we're called to do and not just accept something at only face value, especially when there are reasons to question it and to look deeper. And obviously we don't question God, we don't doubt God's word, but we try to acknowledge or be discerning about what it is that the Lord is trying to communicate to us. Okay, now in conclusion to all this, because we are about out of time, I wanted to make reference to an article, and I sent this to a friend of mine. He and I were going back and forth over the uh, uh, the issue of Christmas. We were talking about people like John Knox. John Knox was not a fan of the celebration of Christmas. But nevertheless, the Reformers had differing views. They did not all agree on this issue. I've talked before about how Martin Luther favored the Christmas holiday. He celebrated Christmas. Uh, so here's an article from a website called Evangelical Focus Europe. 
And the article is called Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli on Christmas. What did the three main reformers think about Christmas? And so he starts with Martin Luther. He says, Luther was pro-Christmas. He says, Luther, the fieriest, funniest, and most charismatic of the three reformers, loved celebrating Christmas, and he often preached upon the birth of Christ as 25th December drew near. And then he goes on, talking about Luther. Then he talks about Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer. And he says, uh, Zwingli was anti-Christmas. He says, quote, at the other end of the evangelical spectrum was Ulrich Zwingli. There can be no doubt that he was the most radical of the three leading magisterial reformers. And Zwingli was against the celebration of Christmas. All right. Number three, and this, I have to, I have to tell you, this was surprising to me. John Calvin. Calvin, he says, was neither for nor against. Calvin appears to have been neutral on the issue. And uh, here's, what, uh, here's what the article says. This article, by the way, I should mention, is written by uh, an author named Will Graham. Will Graham is credited with the article. It's a pretty brief article. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to show that the three main views that are held today on the Christmas holiday for, against, and somewhat neutral, that those three positions are what we have today. And that's what you had through the time of the Great Reformation. So he says... uh, On Calvin, he says, quote, although Calvin accepted the regulative principle of Zwingli and not Luther's normative principle, he believed that each local congregation could decide how best to celebrate or not celebrate the festive season. In spite of the fact that some have asserted that Calvin was in the anti-Christmas camp, the Frenchman wrote two letters in January 1551 and March 1555 outlining his stance with respect to Christmas. In the January 1551 letter, Calvin explained that the Geneva authorities had done away with festive days before he arrived in the city, whilst openly confessing that he did, personally speaking, celebrate the birth of Christ. Okay, then he goes on, he says, quote, in the March 1551 letter, Calvin hit out at those who criticized certain churches, which opted to commemorate the festive period. According to the Geneva reformer, such questions were, quote, matters of indifference. Each church could take the best decision after mediating long and hard upon the issue at hand. In other words, the church has the liberty to decide whether or not to celebrate Christmas. But by no means should any church slander another congregation, which takes the opposite course. And uh, that's, that's what, uh, what apparently John Calvin's view was of the Christmas holiday. You know, as the Apostle Paul says about those who eat meat and those who do not, let not him that eats meat despise him that eats herbs. Let not him that eats herbs despise him that eats meat. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And that is what we believe. 
And that's what I try to communicate whenever these issues come up, that we ought to discuss and debate in a godly and brotherly manner, one toward another. All right, but we know these discussions will continue to go on, and hopefully we can all move forward in faith and grow together in our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. All right, brethren, that is going to do it for us today. That is our show. We will stop it there, but we will be back next time as the Lord leads us. Until then, God bless you guys. I'm Chris Pinto, and you've been listening to Noise of Thunder Radio. Noise of Thunder Radio.